Good morning there, church family. Uh, Pastor Tim is not here uh, this week, but the church can continue on. And I texted him yesterday. Um, he asked me how morning service went, and I said, good, the church is still standing. And um, he said, that is good, or something like that. So um, the church is still, is still standing, and uh, we are here to record um, the midweek devotion, um, talking about the sermon from Sunday morning. Uh, with uh, Psalm 110, beginning our Sunday uh, Psalm series, as we uh, here are in the latter part, sadly, of the summer, um, heading towards into August now. Um, so we, we opened up with uh, Psalm 110 uh, this week, um, a very important psalm. Um, the most quoted passage in the New Testament from the Old Testament is Psalm 110. Jesus quotes it um, in Matthew 22, when his discussion with uh, the religious leaders, you remember, that's whenever they decided to not ask him any more questions. Whenever he said, who is David's, how can he be David's son if he's David's Lord? And they're like, oh, we're not, we're done. We're done talking to you. Um, and then Jesus also alludes to it in his trial with uh, the religious leaders in Matthew, is it 26? Whenever he says, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand. And again, the right hand idea. Um, so alluding to the same ideas there and then the same idea again is quoted at the day of pentecost when uh, peter preaches and uh, peter preaches that jesus christ has been put at the right hand of god the father and is pouring out this that you're seeing and hearing so all throughout the uh, gospel proclamation of the new testament psalm 110 plays a central role in the the apostolic understanding of what has happened um, and what the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ means for us today. So Psalm 110 plays a very important um, interpretive role in helping uh, the apostles and us today understand what um, Jesus did, who he is, and, and how he accomplishes what he came to do. So we broke up the psalm into three sections um, verses one through three, and then I preached five through seven, and then kept verse four for the last, because verse four is um, the heart of the psalm. It's the distinctive verse, the center of it. And so um, verses one through three, we see Jesus seated at God's right hand. Verses five through seven, we see Jesus triumphing over all of his enemies. And then verse four, the center of that is we see Jesus interceding as priest forever. So that's how we broke up the psalm. Um, yeah, so I'm, I don't usually lead these discussions, so it kind of feels a little awkward. <laughs> um, so before we dive into the points themselves, any thoughts about Psalm 110 and the way that, you know, any maybe you mentioned, maybe you have other ideas about places that we have this psalm alluded to in the New Testament or its place in the New Testament or the ideas it contains being important. Any discussion about that? I was going to ask how many times it's quoted in the book of Hebrews compared to other places in the New Testament, because it's quoted yeah, a lot there. It's quoted a lot. Um, I do not know the number of that, but yeah, writer of the Hebrews right away, first few verses alludes to it. Mm -hmm. And then... Um, I think you said at one point in your sermon that the book of Hebrews is almost like an expansion yeah. of Psalm it's 110. It's basically a riff on yeah. Psalm 110. Mm -hmm. Yeah, particularly verse 4. Mm -hmm. but um, But yeah, because... He uh, is driving, if you open up the first chapter, 
of uh, the book of Hebrews, which by the way, side note, there is a video my wife showed me one time. There's a guy, a pastor who memorized the whole book of Hebrews and preached it. Wow. As just, just cause, uh, you Straightforward, know, like yeah, idiot. like it yeah. could be a sermon because mm-hmm. that's what some people think it could be. It could have been a sermon, um, delivered. Um, so that's kind of, kind of cool to think about. But, um, if you think about Hebrews that way as a homily or a sermon of sorts, um, he opens up in, in his, uh, in the first few verses, he talks about Jesus, um, who Jesus is, but then he goes and quotes old Testament passages of scripture and he's trying to show that Jesus is superior to the angels. And yeah, in verse 13, kind of his capping verse is, and to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And then he kind of goes off from then. Um, yeah, for the rest of the book really, and seems to kind of, he, he, he goes into other passages of scripture, other themes, but he always keep, seems to keep coming back to this high priest element, um, the Melchizedek element, the Jesus putting all enemies under his feet element. All of those things seem to keep, be, keep uh, coming back in the whole book of, of Hebrews. So it could be helpful to read the book of Hebrews um, with that in mind again and just see what mm-hmm. themes you, you see um, tying into that, that passage of scripture. Not saying that explains the whole book of Hebrews, but it is a very fascinating way to read it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought it was uh, neat, you know, the point you made about even like the Hebrew understanding, the Hebrew mindset, they would have understood um, the idea of the, the enemies underneath the feet, you know, the footstool, because that was would have been in ancient Egypt, right? you know, and how that was a good tie-in because it, it's, you know, so much of of uh, of what we see here in Scripture, it's like the context they would have understood. Oh, yeah, that's a that's a very powerful word picture. We've seen that before. We right. we know Egyptian ways, yeah, and how they you know uh, they proclaim things as far as them mm-hmm. being superior. And here we have Jesus, the Messiah, who is superior over right. above and beyond all principalities and powers. So that was good. Mm. Yeah, yeah, no, that was a really cool thing. You can look up online to archaeological stuff and see those yeah. those images. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because the ancient world, it could be maybe not even the Egyptians, but the Assyrians and others, they they loved putting on the walls uh, the conquered enemies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so you can imagine another side side note, right? Whenever Jonah goes to preach at Nineveh, he's going along the wall, and as he's entering the palace, there's all these pictures of all the enemies that they've trampled under, and I'm supposed to preach grace to these people. <laughs> and uh, that's why it would have been um, a really, really... Uh, Really a crazy, crazy thing. So first of all, verses one through three, we see Jesus seated at God's right hand. Um, that powerful verse opens up the Lord Yahweh says to my Lord, my master, my sovereign, my superior, sit down, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So right away, this is where Jesus um, in his uh, discussions in the temple will um, lead the, uh, right. He throws, so they've come to him and asked questions, right? So they, they try to throw questions to him to trick him and to trip him up. And then he throws one back at them. Well, how can David say, you know, if he's supposed to be a David's son, how is he David's Lord? Mm-hmm. And, uh, we're told they dared not to ask any more questions after this. Mm-hmm. Um, they were done. Um, so this is obviously, um, mysterious, but in the light of the New Testament, we know this is the father speaking to his his son. Um, the father says to, my, to his son, sit at my right hand. So we talked about Jesus is seated with glory and honor in the, the first uh, verse there. 
um, he rules over all of his enemies. Um, verse two, it talks about how, um, having been seated at the right hand, the place of favor, the place of power and honor, he then rules over the world with his scepter. And then verse three, he's seated and he draws people, all people to himself. And there's a lot of people, um, like we said, the, the latter part of verse three, um, can, has, is, can be interpreted different ways. Um, one interpretation is that, um, the dew is representative of the, uh, the innumerable amount of people uh, that are there. Uh, but, oh, but overall, you can still see the point, though. The people are offering themselves freely, willingly of their, of their own volition. They're not being compel, com, uh, um, coerced, I should say, coerced into um, offering themselves to the Lord and to this king. They, they come, come willingly. Thoughts about verses 1 through 3. What are other interpretations of verse 3? You said there's like a lot of variety of the last part of verse three. Yeah. I forget. I want to think, I don't know if other people refer to it more specifically to the, the Christ to the Lord. Um, honestly, I didn't do a ton of research into it because I was, you know, verse four was really the heart of it. So I yeah. didn't really dive yeah. into it. It's like, there's a little note. Like yeah. I have that a little note in my Bible. And it just says, the meaning of the Hebrew is uncertain. Right, yeah. right. I said, it's a yeah, difficult phrase in Hebrew. Yeah, so like yeah. here, phrase. Here, in the, uh, here in the ESV study Bible, it says this, the dew of the youth may be a poetic term for refreshment, implying that the king has continual sources of fresh energy, or it might suggest willing soldiers as numerous as the dew drops. Yeah. So it can refer to the king himself, the Lord, um, uh, Jesus, or it can refer to his soldiers. Mm-hmm. That's um, what this says, the king's troops with eager and mysterious appearance, like the dew in the morning. Mm, so they just appear. They just show up, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah like the dew does in the morning. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there's, there's, you can you can explore that. It was very dewy this morning. Yeah. Was it? Left, yeah, I did I left my house. There was a lot of dew on the ground, so <laughs> it just appears. <laughs> so Jesus is there seated. Um at God's at God's right hand, ruling and reigning. Second of all, we see, and then so we skip down to verses five through seven. I had one brother in the church who told me he was very nervous that I was skipping over verse four. <laughs> He's like, "What? Oh, really? <laughs> I'm like, That's you're not going to touch on verse four? Um, but yeah, we skipped over that for the moment and went to verses five through seven. We see Jesus triumphing over his enemies. So the Lord sitting at the right hand um, now um, executes his righteous vengeance and justice against the rebellious uh, nations and the rebellious uh, forces of evil. So he shatters kings, he executes judgment, he shatters chiefs over the earth, he drinks from the brook by the way, and therefore he lifts up his head. So in these verses, we see the king having been seated, he's got his army, he's got his people, they're all willing to follow him. But for those who do not follow him, for those who refuse his his forgiveness and his kindness, they've chosen his wrath, and so therefore he executes his just wrath against them um, in verses 5 through 7. And we talked about how these enemies ultimately um, are not really... Um, you know, they're not really geopolitical countries, so to speak. It's not like, um, you know, you can, you can find some country in Asia or the Middle East or wherever and say, that's who this is. No, it's, it's everybody who opposes King Jesus. And ultimately, we are told who the real enemies are in the New Testament. Ephesians tells us we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces of evil. And uh, then whenever you look at this in light of, for instance, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it tells us, the last enemy to be destroyed is 
death. Mm. So death is our enemy. Sin is our enemy. The devil is our enemy and all of his allies. Um, in that sense, the world in so far as it refuses to come to the light mm is the enemy of Jesus Christ as well. Jesus came to save the world, but for all those who refuse to come to the light, lest their deeds be exposed, they stay in the darkness. They have allied themselves with Satan, and therefore they too are shattered on the day of the king's wrath here. Um, thoughts about five, five through seven, about Jesus' triumphing over his enemies. I mean, it's just what they, I mean, what Jesus, what what the disciples thought that, Jesus' victory was going to look like. He was going to be a political leader, right, or a, or a military leader that was going right. to overthrow the enemy of Rome. Mm-hmm. And just that reminder of, like, that's those are not the real enemies. Right. right? That, that Rome mm-hmm. is not your problem. Or, like, we could think today for ourselves, you know, the Democratic or the Republican Party is not the problem. Right. There's a deeper problem mm-hmm. here, right, that we're concerned with. And I thought I thought it was a good point you were making. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there, I mean, there's this very strong verbs, you know, that are used. You know, like he will execute judgment. You know, he will shatter twice. That's word that mm-hmm. use that words used. He will fill them, uh, filling them with corpses. I mean, there's mm-hmm. very strong yeah uh, word pictures there, and, and a very very clear sense of like you mentioned of how judgment will come uh, to those who reject the king, and so that's very clear there. And it reminds you of Revelation chapter 19, Mm. in a sense, too, right? When Jesus returns, Mm -hmm. um, I mean, the very vivid imagery of calling the birds of all the earth to eat upon the flesh of the vanquished enemies of of Jesus Christ, um, who, by the way, returns with his army, Mm -hmm. um, with those willing people, um, and they are clothed in white garments, or here it says holy garments. Mm -hmm. Um, So also verse seven is interesting. I read... um, he will drink from the brook, by the way. And again, like there's, um, you might find different interpretations. I don't know. But one of them that I found was that this emphasizes almost, it reminded me of that verse. Remember when Jesus, um, it says uh, in Luke that he set his face like a flint mm, toward Jerusalem. Toward Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. And that's actually quoted, I think, from Isaiah or somewhere. Um, so d- showing his determination. Jesus had set his sights on accomplishing the tasks the Father had given him. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what the verse 7 could be, that Jesus is taking no breaks. He just goes, if he needs a drink, he goes from the brook real quick, and then he keeps on going. Mm-hmm. It's almost like a, um, you know, Jesus, it's a kind of a threat, too, to his enemies. This king does not stop. He will hound, he will, he will pursue complete victory mm-hmm. over his enemies, over those who um, oppose him. And so he, he lifts up his head in victory, and, and, he, and he drinks from the brook, by the way. So Yeah, and you could even, almost too, with that, with that connection, you, when he, the idea of drinking, you have to bend down to drink, lap the right. water up, and the, right. but then he lifts up his head. He's right back. Right. His gaze is There's right. There's an alertness. Yes, and he has a, a mission and intention. So right. So I think that's a good word picture there. Yeah, yeah, and so that's... That's definitely one way to, to take that verse. Um, but overall, I think it connotes, yeah, Jesus is pursuing a complete victory. Mm-hmm. He's, not, uh, he's not just for a partial victory. He's, he's going to go get the complete, complete victory, mop up everything um, and such. But then uh, verse 4, right in smack dab in the center of the psalm, is really the heart of the whole thing. And uh, it's a beautiful verse. It's a powerful verse. And... Um, a very, very interesting verse. In fact, um, we talked about in the psalm, 
uh, a few reasons why it stands out. First of all, it says the Lord has sworn because in the Bible, God doesn't swear willy nilly. He doesn't just do this all the time. So when the Lord swears um, and takes an oath and lets us know that he's, he's pointing out to us, look, pay attention here. Something big is happening here. Something important is being revealed and proclaimed here. So, so pay attention here. Um, additionally, we talked about the idea of Melchizedek. Uh, Melchizedek is, is something that is a, is a person that there's various interpretations about who he is. But the reality is, is he only appears three times in the entire Bible. Genesis 14, Psalm 110, and then Hebrews, where um, the writer to the Hebrews kind of um, exposits for us, you know, kind of draws out um, who this Melchizedek is or how... Um, how uh, the the uh, the comparison between him and Jesus, and how that helps us understand who Jesus is and what he's doing for us. Of course, we know there's various interpretations about who Melchizedek is. Some people believe that he is um, a pre-incarnate Christ. Um, that is one option. Other people believe that um, he was a holy man who um, was a mortal like us, you know, a mere man like us, uh, but who. Um, was a true believer in the God of Israel and Christ to come, but um, in in many ways it's kind of like a type of Jesus mm-hmm. to to come. So there's we can we can debate that. Either way, it doesn't change the meaning of who Jesus is, mm-hmm. um, which is which is important. But it's very interesting because Melchizedek doesn't show up anywhere else. And actually, if you were to read Genesis chapter 14 and you read those verses where Melchizedek comes you could really almost remove all those verses and the passage would still make perfect sense. Mm. So by slipping Melchizedek in, um, even then Moses is doing something. The Holy Spirit's reminding us and showing us this mysterious character appears and disappears real quick. Um, so I think that highlights, this is a very unusual thing that's, that's going on. I was just going to ask if there's any apocryphal information about Melchizedek. That you know I of. do not know that. Dave, do you know that? I do not. Mm-mm. Okay. Nope. I was just curious. Yeah, I don't know that. I don't know um, if anybody wrote about him um, afterwards. Potentially, probably. Probably some stuff. But um, It's almost like Gandalf. You know, Gandalf just kind of <laughs> slipped in the, the narrative and <laughs> came at the right time at the right place, and then he was gone. <laughs> right? Well, I've, I've never thought of it that way, Maybe Dave, Tolkien but... had the idea there. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway. No, that's good. That's no, good. Melchizedek is Tom Bombadil. That's, that's Oh, yeah, there you go. Now Sorry, we're hijacking. Now we're getting into What is that? Is that a Lord of the Rings reference, too? Or is Read that the a, book, Spencer, yeah. and you'll find out who Tom Bombadil is. I didn't know if that is. was a Dragon Ball Z reference no, or something. No, no. I, can, I can do that if you want. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but it. But it is fascinating to think about, you know, uh, and again, that's a good point. You know, obviously Moses being carried along by the Holy Spirit wrote that. And, uh, and there's a purpose for that, ultimately pointing to Christ. But it's almost like, you know, where did this guy come from? It's like Job, you know, Job right off uh, Job chapter one. It's like, here's this man pre, you know, uh, law, pre Torah, pre Moses, maybe even pre Abraham. And like, where did he come from? And yet he's following Yahweh, you know, and he's doing what God's called him to do. And so here we have this similar, it's kind of interesting. And that he was both a priest and a king. Right, right. Which is very fascinating. Yeah, and that's a big deal that the writer of the Hebrew writer to the Hebrews makes is mm-hmm. that he's his his name means King of Righteousness, yeah. and he's the King of Salem, which the writer to the Hebrews points out is peace. So righteousness and peace, 
Uh, but at the same time, he combines with that office of king, the office of priest, mm-hmm. which we pointed out, no Israelite king um, Jew, uh, of Judah or of either of the split kingdoms or of the unified kingdoms mm-hmm. was ever allowed to do that. We see whenever Samuel or Saul tries to make sacrifices yeah. um, without Samuel, that's a no-no. And then we also see the big one is Uzziah mm-hmm. going into the temple. He thinks he can offer incense or whatever and the priests tell him no you you know um and then he gets struck with leprosy and he has to quickly leave Mm -hmm. and he's a leper for the rest of his days so highlighting to them you do not have the right to take the role of priest but here's a king who has that right to put these two offices together in one person and that's what we see in in jesus christ he combines the offices of prophet priest and king into one person really in some ways you can think about there's in jesus christ there's one office of mediator with three aspects of prophet priest and king that are all 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 brought together in his in his wonderful person um and such so so one of the things though we brought out in the sermon and i thought this was important to to help people think about is uh the question so what so why do i need a priest uh, that's great. We we don't need priests, and I think sometimes, um, uh, particularly in our context, um, in a largely Catholic area, some people hear the word priest and they think, "Well, I don't need a priest," and they're just thinking about mm-hmm. the local Roman Catholic priest. And we would say, of course, yeah. In that sense, you don't have to confess your sins to a priest like that—a priest here on earth. Um, you don't have to do that. Um, but you do need a priest. And I think that, that was a, that's an important thing to help people realize. You do need a priest. And here's why. And so we talked about people, um, this emotional uh, wellness coach that said the three biggest fears that hold people back are fear of failure, fear of not being good enough, fear of disappointing others. Little do they know those are all fears generated by the law. Hmm. Because the law always tells us what we ought to be or ought to do. And this can be true even if um, it's God's law or laws that we make up. So for instance, a law that we make up might be the number of people that like my post on Facebook or Twitter or whatever. And you make a law, a standard that's not God's law, but you're still trying to meet a standard. And we all realize that law has no ability to save. Law does not give us any ability even to fulfill it. It tells us what we ought to do or what we think we ought to do, but it gives no ability to do that. So law at the end of the day, if unless you are able to fulfill it, it only condemns you. And so then people have these fears, fears of failure, fear of not being good enough, fear of disappointing other people. And right away, it's very important for people because uh, in our society today, I think many people would like to push against those things saying, no, you're not a failure. No, you're, you, you are good enough. And we don't want people to unnecessarily beat them up themselves up. But on the other hand, we do want to say in light of God's law, every single one of us are in the same position. We are failures. We are not good enough. And we are disappointing. I'm disappointing to my family. I'm disappointing to um, even my coworkers. Believe it or not, I'm sure there's things that I do or don't do that I fail in. I'm sure there's things that I do... Um, with my neighbors or whatever. And most of all, I know I'm, I'm disappointing and I'm not good enough before God in regards to his law. And that's not like being, um, 
just overly negative. That's just being honest because that's what Romans one through three tells us, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we were uh, in the youth summer discipleship course uh, yesterday. We were talking about the uh, when Jesus shared the story about the Pharisee and the tax collector. Yeah. that went to the temple to pray because we were talking about the gospel enemy of self-righteousness. Mm-hmm. And the Pharisee is a clear example of self-righteousness, right? He goes in, he says, Lord, thank you for not making me like these other people, um, like this tax collector here. Instead, here is what I do, right? right. Made a standard for himself and makes it low enough to where he can meet it. Correct. So, so he's mm-hmm. self-righteous. But then you have the the tax collector who can't, who stays far away, can't even look up to heaven, and instead is beating his breast saying, mm-hmm. forgive me, a sinner. And Jesus says that he's the one who went away mm-hmm. justified. But he didn't, well, I mean, at least the, right there in the story, that the point was to show that the brokenness, the humility, the recognition of unworthiness is what led him to not be counted righteous in himself, but to ask for forgiveness right. and receive righteousness from the only one who can give it mm-hmm. is the Lord. And so it's just like to me, like you talking about people don't need to be told like, oh, you are worthy. You are good enough. Right. Right. The thing that that was good about that, that tax collector was it's good that you're recognizing that you're a sinner. Mm-hmm. Right. Jesus, you know, like he's not the point of that. That story is not to sit there and say, it's OK. Don't beat yourself up so bad. Right. Right. Don't right. beat yourself up about it. You made a mistake. It's OK. Right. You know. Just get through this, you know, stop doing this. It was just very plainly good. Right. You're broken about good. Right. It's good that you're, that you see just how bad it is for you. And one of the things you use the word worth, I think, which Mm -hmm. ties into a song we sing on Sunday morning. Um, My worth is not in what I own. Yeah. And our worth then. So what we are saying is we're not saying that there's no possibility for you to be, um, restored or anything like that. And we're not saying just go around and beat yourself up, but the law condemns us so that we can see that our worth is not even in what we do or our, our sinful hearts, but God gives us that worth in the blood of Jesus Mm -hmm. Christ. So everything that God commands and that we fail to do, that's how good God is. He Mm -hmm. gives what he commands and that we fail to do. He gives it to us freely in Jesus Christ. And the law is good. When, and whenever we say this too, we're not saying the law should be bent or the law. The law is good. The problem is me, not the, not God's law. Mm-hmm. And what we are saying, though, is that God gives graciously everything that he requires of us. And that's what the tax collector was driven to outside of himself, to look outside of himself to Jesus Christ, um, to God's mercy um, that he freely gives to us. Mm-hmm. And that's a wonderful, that's a wonderful thing to, to finally get people um free because the more you dive into yourself um you're not going to get out of that that's a cesspool and you shouldn't be surprised if you're going to be depressed if you're thinking about yourself i get that way if i'm sitting there just thinking about my sin and just trying to analyze motivations all that stuff good luck Mm. that's what the gospel is outside of us it's in jesus christ and that's what faith does faith looks outside to him acknowledging our, our our weaknesses and our sins confession and repentance and all of that ultimately terminates and has its goal in Jesus Christ saving us. That's the end. And if we don't get there, then we haven't finally, we haven't really turned. We, we got to get to him and look to him and, and just see everything we need 
is is found in him. Yeah, and that's why Paul says that, you know, in Romans 7, you know, that there's no good thing within me that is within my flesh. Right. Nothing, no good in the, in the sense that there's not, it doesn't originate in me, in my flesh, mm. but the good comes from God. And therefore, you know, like, Going from the law perspective, yes, the the law shows us that we are failure, that we fail, that we miss the mark. That's the, yeah, that's the definition yeah, of sin, right. right? But in Christ, we are more than conquerors, yeah. and that's the difference. And so it's shifting. It's like Jesus saying, you know, in order to find yourself, you got to lose yourself. Correct. Our culture says, find yourself, right? Right. Find all these things that make you feel in yourself complete and competent. Where the the gospel says, no, you are, you have been made complete. You are in Christ. There's now no condemnation. So I think that's the yeah. the difference. We don't have to walk around like, oh man, I messed up again. You know, that's our na- that's our nature. I get that. Right. We don't have to condemn ourselves, but we know that we have in Christ. We have that completeness, and Correct. we can run to the cross and run to that blood over and over mm-hmm. again. And that's what helps us, I think, overcome depression, anxiety, insecurity. Right. On and on. You know, yeah. So. Yeah. No. Exactly. Um, so we turn to the priest, and I thought it was helpful to, to highlight, too, what a priest does. Um, Hebrews 5 roughly tells us a priest is someone who's chosen for men to work in the interest of men on behalf on behalf of men before God. He offers sacrifices and gifts to God. And um, when you look at the Old Testament, particularly the book of Leviticus, you can see the types of people that the priest comes and helps. He helps the guilty who have broken God's law, makes atonement for them. He helps the unclean, those who have leprosy, those who are diseased, and he will eventually declare them clean whenever they are clean and, and purifies them. Um, he, he works for the unreconciled and also the fearful. So all of those people, and by the way, all of those things were, were images ultimately of sin. Um, sin makes us guilty, but sin also makes us unclean. It makes us unreconciled, and it also makes us fearful of, of God. And so, in light of all of those things, God appoints a priest for us. He sent him to us, and he gives him to us, and because for a world, uh, a dark world, uh, where each of us participate in, uh, that is guilty and, and dirty and needing the cleansing that is found in, in, that comes through this priest. So, we talked about he's an unchangeable priest, because the Lord swears and will not change his mind. He's an ever-living priest. He's a priest forever, we're told. Um, he's a triumphant priest. I pointed out there um, in the sermon because you see, uh, it says Jesus. God says, "I don't desire sacrifices and burnt offerings, but I do desire what He's going to do." Um, and the writer to the Hebrews says, um, "He got rid of the first, the first law, um, referring to all those those sacrificial animals and all of those cleansings that were external, uh, because it's by the will of Jesus Christ, where Jesus Christ came and says, I will do.'" Um, to do your will as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. And so um, one of the things I, I, I tied in there, and I think it's a helpful thing, is God does not desire our sacrifices and offerings. And by that, I mean this, not our sacrifices of thanksgiving, which we do after we're saved um, or because of what God's done for us, but those sacrifices and offerings that we try to offer up to God to atone for or placate him in some way. And those sacrifices and offerings can take different forms. They can take the form of, I will never do this ever again. I promise. Or, I'm really, really, really sorry this time. 
I'm really broken this time or crying or tears or trying to be really full of regret or uh, trying to say, I'm going to really turn my life around this time. Um, or just trying to, or, or saying, you know what? I know I did something really wrong, but before I can really believe I'm forgiven, I've got to feel really bad about this. And so we, we intentionally are trying to feel bad about stuff um, as if, as if in our flesh, again, we can do that. The, the old man cannot and will not repent. Yeah. And so any a number of those ways, and there's, there's many other ways that we can try to do this, to try to offer sacrifices and offerings to um, atone for our sins. Now, we often don't do that today by blood, but we do do it with our feelings or with our, our, our motivations or yeah. our resolutions. Mm-hmm. Um, do you see that? in your lives or in other people's lives, trying to placate God with these sacrifices and offerings? Mm-hmm. I think like and you mentioned this in your sermon, almost like the, the bargaining, like, okay, God, yeah, you know what? I, I know if I do this, if I really clean up my, you know, my life here, if I really, you know, just give this to you, then, then you're going to do this. It's like right. we, we, we bargain with God, you know, and, um, and it's just, yeah. And it's, it falls into works. And yeah. how easily we are self-deceived, mm. you know, and our culture is all works, works, works. You know, you perform, you do A and B, you'll get C. It's almost like there was a covenant of works made with Adam a long time ago. Uh, almost, <laughs> you <know>? yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Hello. Yeah, yeah. And so I think that is very easy to fall into, um, especially in, in our context and culture that we live in, where everything's based on performance. So. Yes, yeah. And I think it's important, too, because sometimes we look at our society today, and we look at it and we see the... Uh, rampant we would say immorality going on in our culture and we would think this is a society that is the opposite of legalistic but that's actually false <laughs> there's a lot of people now they they may have a they have a different law than god's law we have a very legalistic culture i mean um uh, we have a, a culture that is obsessed with law that's why we have i mean think about cancel culture it's all about executing vengeance to people who break laws or conventions whether they are right laws or or whether they're really um in harmony with god's law or not right. yeah so in in some ways on the one hand yes we do have a society that opposes god's true law but on the other hand we have a society that makes up a lot of other laws for us mm-hmm. and the reality is is those laws those little laws that we try to make up as well we don't even live up to those mm-hmm. as well we can't even live up to the laws that we try to manufacture. Um, and so um, I think it's a helpful pointer that people, even out in society, um, this is something that people don't realize they're trying to do, but they are trying to to, um, to make reparations yeah. at some level for what they've done or who they are, mm-hmm. trying to bring back harmony to this universe that is clearly not the way it ought to be. Scott, you yeah. were looking at a passage of scripture? Yeah, so I mean, I was just trying to think of like uh, how to think through what you're saying. And um, recently the the kids in Sunday school looked at the story of Zacchaeus, I think. Yeah. And so I was just thinking through Zacchaeus. He was a wee little man. He was a wee little man. He climbed up into a sycamore tree. (laughs) And uh, yeah, everybody always likes to remind you of that. Um, But when Jesus was interacting with Zacchaeus and he was in his house as a guest, in verse 8 of Luke chapter 19, it says, And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone anything, I restore it fourfold. Mm. Right. So he's talking, as a tax collector, 
right? He had done a lot of shady things, right? You know, taking more than what he should have. You know, his, his people saw him as a traitor, whatever. You know, and he's just saying like, if I've defrauded anybody, meaning yeah. I have, yeah. You know, and so you know, Zacchaeus obviously expresses remorse, yes, right there, and he's telling Christ, "Hey, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna take I'm gonna back away from this life, and mm-hmm. I'm gonna stop doing that kind of stuff." I mean, it's obviously a good thing that he's doing yes. there. So, how is that different? I'm just trying to help mm-hmm. us think through. Yeah. How is that different than kind of what you were talking yeah. about in terms of I'm going to not do that anymore. I'm going to stop doing this. Right. right. What is what is good about what Zacchaeus is doing? Yeah. Versus what is what what's the situation you're talking about that's mm-hmm. not good? Yeah, I would say the difference is obviously is is um, Zacchaeus is not doing those things in order to placate God anymore. He's Jesus has already saved him. Jesus will say salvation has come. Right. And maybe that comes right after that. It does. It comes right, right after that. Because yeah. this is a fruit of faith, of trusting in Jesus. And so we're, we are called to have lives of repentance. And you see this with John the Baptist. Whenever um, he's baptizing, remember the soldiers and um, tax collectors, and they say, what then shall we do? So they're not saying that in order to be made right with God, but because they have been made right with God. Mm. So this is a consequence of faith, a result that flows from faith, not something we do in order to be made right with God, but because we have been made right with God. And I think that's the big difference that we're talking about. Um, that's a helpful, helpful yeah. point to and make. I, it would probably be different if, like, if Zacchaeus just ran up to Jesus, I want to give everything I have, you know, and give, I'll do all this, do all this. Then Jesus has been like, well, like the rich young, rich young ruler. He's yeah, so he's like, kind of like the opposite situation. Yeah. Jesus had invited him. He said, I'm going to come to your house today. I'm going to be, I'm going <laughs> to pursue you. And I think, as you said, Spencer, the result being like, wow, here the Lord God has given himself to me has shown me his love as a result i want to give yeah. back if you yeah. will to to please so it's a if you switch the narrative i think it would be like oh wait yeah he's trying to uh bargain here <laughs> yeah, yeah 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 he's not trying to buy god's love right he is uh he knows that he's already been bought yeah so therefore he's able to give away freely yeah, that's a really helpful point, Scott, because, um, yeah, we're not saying don't repent or don't do good things, but um, the motivation and uh, the reason that you're pursuing those things um, is, is, very, is very important. Mm. So Jesus then says, though, that it's his death, his resurrection, his everything he is and did for us is our salvation. Um, and I quoted that hymn that I love, that, that thy work's not mine, O Christ. Speak gladness to this heart. They tell me all is done. They bid my fear depart. Mm. Um, I sang that song. That song we sang, I had never heard that song before until um, my wife and I went to, a, when I was in seminary, there was a church right across the border in Essex, Ontario. Um, that was a, a Baptist church there. And they wanted a, uh, they needed somebody to fill the pulpit or whatever. And so they contacted the seminary and we drove over there. And so it's an awesome little church. Um, a small group of uh, of really solid believers, but this is one of the songs they sang, and I had never heard it before. And I was like, "Oh my goodness, this song is so good!" Um, uh, it's actually in the the Trinity hymnal that we have in I have in my office over there. Um, but it continually focuses: "Thy pains not mine, no Christ; thy cross not mine; thy righteousness." Because it's so important, it consistently turns our attention back to Jesus and away from ourselves to see that. So lastly, Jesus is not only triumphant over all those things, but he's seated over our greatest fears. He's seated over all of those enemies now, sin, death, the devil, and yes, even your own heart. 
He is seated over those things in victory and having finished, um, having finished those, those things. He's, he accomplished his victory over sin on the cross. Um, death was defeated through his death. Um, the devil, Jesus says in John, is it 12? Now the ruler of this world is cast out. And so Jesus in his cross um, came to crush the head of, of the serpent. And, and John even reminds us in, one of, in his epistle that even whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our own hearts. Mm-hmm. Jesus is seated over those as well. And that's, that's such a comfort um, to know that whereas the past priests could never sit down because their work was never finished, there was always more to do. Jesus continues as a priest forever out of the work that is completely finished, and he has sanctified us once once for all. It's finished. Um, and so he is seated there over all of our fears, over all of our sin and all of that, and so we can have confidence now to draw near to that throne of grace uh, because we have we have a priest. Yeah. Comments about that before we wrap up here. I think that says it all. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, no, I, I think this psalm was, was a lot of fun to prepare for and preach. Um, and so... I was glad for the opportunity to do that. So um, it's important for us too to remember, I think um, Jesus Christ is not with us in body here, but he is with us in his word and his spirit. And I want people, I want myself to be reoriented to that because sometimes we think about these Bible passages and we think about, well, yeah, Jesus is way up there and I'm way down here. Um, but um, how can I, you know, really you know, uh, talk to him or whatever. And um, it's very important for people to realize. And I think for me to be continually reminded of that when Jesus says, I am with you always to the ends of the earth, he didn't mean by that, hey, I've got, I'm totally behind you guys. (laughs) He wasn't saying, listen, you guys go knock yourselves out, go, go preach the gospel and just know you've got my support. That's not what he meant. He meant, I am present with you and we don't see him. And as Peter says, though you have not seen him, you love him. We don't see Jesus. We don't see him here, but he is here. He's here speaking to us through the Bible, through the person of the Spirit who brings his, his uh, incarnate presence with us. Um, it's a mystery. We can't explain it all, but we, he told us he's here. And so whenever you pray to him uh, at home, but also and especially whenever we're gathered with the saints, on the Lord's day, we have a priest gathered there. And I love the thought of Jesus, um, who's better than Levitical priests going to all of our unclean hearts, all of our leprous hearts and going amongst us all, each of us, all these dirty sheep, all of us and ministering to us, declaring us clean, washing us, cleansing us. And, you know, you think about what the priest did in the Old Testament. One of the ways they cleansed people was by taking the blood and they put it on their earlobe. And, like, he put it on like certain key spots. I forget all the different places. But he would take the blood and apply it to them. And that's what Jesus does every week. He goes around as our priest and takes his blood and puts it on every single one of us in all of our unique ways, wherever we're at. And that, that takes faith to know that he's doing it. But we don't understand all that he's doing but we do know he's there. And so a priest is gathered every week here. So you don't, you don't have to go to some special church. That is one of our big disagreements with the Roman Catholic church. You don't have to go to one of their priests. We have the priest 
every week here, gathered here, and he's finished it all. And he's here to, to heal us all and to forgive us of our sins and to give us his blessing. All right. So when we bring back the greeting time, should the yeah. greeting not be, guys, don't shake each other's hands, just grab each other's earlobes to remind yourselves. I'll let you give a yank. You know, I think you and Charles Brooke can bring that back. Oh. You and Charlie have a really cool you symbiotic start, relationship, you, I've you noticed. You start that off with, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, there's some... Um, yeah, we'll we'll talk about that in, yeah. in staff meeting. Okay. <laughs> yeah, sure. All right. Well, thanks for listening to this. Um, uh, take care and uh, God bless.